Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing how Jesus came to save those who recognize they are sinners and need a Savior to get right with God. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I begin in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you again for this glorious day and bringing us all together here where we can study your word. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We ask that we be guided through your word this morning as we continue our study of Luke. Teach us what each of us need to hear today to help us continue to transform our lives. I ask that you speak through me. Speak through others that would speak up today. Guide the discussion in a way that we can truly transform our lives to become the people that you want us to be and be a light in a very dark world around us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Luke 5. And where we left off last time in Luke 4, you recall Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist and had begun his ministry and he went to Nazareth and basically they rejected him. So he went on to Capernaum, which is where he has then made his headquarters for his ministry. And he was teaching in the synagogues in Capernaum and he was healing people and casting out demons and even healed Peter's mother-in-law. And that's where we left off. He was going to keep on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So really all of Israel, including Galilee. And we don't really know how much time now has passed from when we left off at the end of Luke chapter 4. We're not really told, but he's still in Galilee. He is still teaching And let's just jump right on in to chapter 5. It says, Now it came about, while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's also the Sea of Galilee. That's what it's also called. It's called Lake Chinnereth in the Old Testament. You can see that in Numbers 34.11 and Joshua 13.27. It's also sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. It's referred to as that in the Gospel of John. 6-1 and 21-1. But the Sea of Galilee, it's about 13 miles wide. It's about seven miles long, and it's 700 feet below sea level. And it eventually empties into the Dead Sea by way of the Jordan River. So this is where he is. And continuing on in verse 2, he, Jesus, saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So he sees these fishermen Verse 3, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. So this is Peter's boat. You'll even see in verse 8, see Simon Peter. I'm not making this stuff up. It's actually Peter's boat. And he had met Peter before. Jesus had met Peter previously through his brother Andrew. You can take a look at that over in the Gospel of John. In fact, let's just go over there real quick. Go over to the right into the Gospel of John. Let me just show you some of this so you see that this has happened previously. John 1, and I'm going to start in at verse 35. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And we'll see this is John and Andrew. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus is coming. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So John and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And now they're going to leave John the Baptist and they're going to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following him and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he, being Jesus, said to them, Come and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So it's about 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, so heard John the Baptist speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon. So after Andrew hears Jesus speak, he goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter, And said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. 
you can continue on, you'll see other disciples are then introduced. But this is when he had first met Peter. So now let's go back over to Luke. So he already knows him. So he sees Peter and the multitudes are coming out. So he wanted to get some distance from the shore so that he could teach. So he gets Peter and gets in Peter's boat, verse 3. And he got into one of the boats with, with Simon's and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. So typically rabbis sat down when they taught. That's just the position that they took when they taught. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Let me point out that you saw when he first saw Peter in verse 2, they were out washing their nets. So typically what you did is you fish at night and then during the day you take care of your equipment. You clean up the boat, you clean up the nets, wash the nets, you mend the nets. So they don't typically fish during the day. And now here Jesus is telling him, you know, yeah, I know you fished all night. You didn't catch anything, but just put out a little bit. Let me show you where the fish are. You know, it's like, really? But this also shows if you read over in Hebrews 4.13, it says no creature is hidden from his sight. So Jesus knew where the fish were. So verse 5. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. He's saying, there are no fish out here. We fished all night. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. So he's very obedient. They had caught nothing all night. It's really difficult to put all these nets out. But he's saying, look, if you want us to try it during the day, okay, I'll be obedient. I'll do what you tell me. Now, I also want to point out, do you see Peter... The way Luke is writing this, Peter says master rather than calling him rabbi here. And remember who Luke is writing to. He's writing to the Greeks. So rabbi is a Jewish term. That's not going to mean as much to a Greek as master. So that's why we see master here. That's why Luke is writing this way. So verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And Jesus is going to direct them to fish again. We saw that when we were studying the Gospel of, of John towards the end in John 21, 1 through 6. You can go over and look at that if you want. So their nets begin to break. They have so many fish. Verse 7, they signal to their partners, which we're going to find is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who Jesus has met previously. But they are Simon's, Peter's partners, fishing partners. So they signal over to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So Jesus shows them that he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. Now, Jesus had voluntarily given up a lot of his power to become man, but he, as we saw, he has the Holy Spirit. But he's also showing them the power that he has and that he is God. And all these fish clearly shows that he's in control of fish. And now Peter is realizing that this Jesus is really something special. I don't know that he fully understands yet. Jesus is teaching them and what have you, but he realizes that Jesus appears to be God and he's a sinful man. And he's saying, I know you told me to follow you, but you might be able to get somebody better than me because I'm a really sinful man. That's basically what Peter's saying. You need to depart from me. You need to get somebody else because I'm very sinful. There's a DTS professor that Chris and I both know I was reading some of his stuff one time, and he said, humility is the elevator to spiritual greatness. When we humble ourselves, God can then really elevate us to greatness. And that's essentially what he's going to do with Peter. And it says in verse 9, why Peter did this, amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And here we see in verse 10, And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. See, those are his fishing partners. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. So it turns out that Peter, James, and John, 
these are going to be the closest disciples to Jesus throughout his ministry. They're even the three that later get to go and see Jesus' transfiguration that we read about when we were studying Matthew, and they fall down and worship him then. Is this John? Is that John, that, the author of John, the book? Yes, it is. Yes, this is the apostle John, not John the Baptist. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So isn't this interesting that they had just caught probably the largest catch that they had ever seen, and yet they chose to leave their boats and leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And this is Jesus calling them now to become fishers of men. I would love to say something on that. I feel like when you reach the culmination of your career, I know specifically for me when I was in the Army, when I got my Ranger tab, that was such a big deal that I was training for for a long time. All of a sudden when I got it, I go, that's it? It was almost like anticlimactic. And so to have this, the greatest catch you could ever have as a fisherman, and then Jesus say, all right, we can do better than that. I think that is exciting because you realize that all your hard work, this guy just did in a, a second, and it's, that's worth following. So that to me, I love that part because I can see it so clearly and all the things you're dreaming about, and then he can do it like that, and you're like, okay, I want to follow you. Yep. That's well, really good. I, I'm just struck by, you said humility is the elevator to spiritual greatness, mm -hmm. but Simon Peter was, <clears throat> this was more than humility. Mm-hmm. This was more than that. He was saying, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He was going, there's a wall. There is a solid wall, and I can't get over it. I'm separated from you. And that's what it really takes to become a Christian. Yeah. That's who Jesus is after. Mm -hmm. If you remember, all the religious leaders, they're self-righteous. They think they're all that. They don't need any help. They don't need a Savior. They have Abraham's blood. They're doing all this religious stuff. Jesus keeps preaching that you've got to be basically like in poverty, broken. But he is certainly saying, I'm not worthy, which is what Jesus wants all of us as Christians to recognize, that it's only by his grace. It's not by anything we've earned or deserved. And you look at the people that he chose to be apostles, they're all a mess. You know, essentially, they are realizing that they're all sinners, and yet they can turn to Jesus for forgiveness and, and be reconciled. And then once you're able to do that, that's when he then sends you out. Now you can actually help him build the kingdom, which is what he's doing now with the apostles. So we pick back up in verse 12. So they're somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, and it came about, that while he was in one of the cities, somewhere around the Sea of Galilee, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So do you notice this? There's not a doubt in his mind that Jesus has the ability to heal him. He says, if you are willing, he said, I know you can do it. I just hope that you're willing and by the way, just a little bit about leprosy, because sometimes people don't know about that disease. If it's a severe case, it can be spread by touching or even your breath. It's highly, highly contagious. It doesn't eat your flesh. Your flesh looks like it's a disaster. What it does is it destroys your sense of touch. And so now you don't feel anything and you actually destroy your own skin because you have no feeling of touch. So it's not like a bug that eats your skin. You basically destroy your own skin. That's what leprosy like by not being cautious does. with it, you mean? Yes. For instance, you might be working around a fire and you're burning your hands up or you're working with something and you're scraping it and you don't even realize it. That's what it really is. Now, the Jewish people view leprosy as just a, a curse, that God has done that to you because you're so sinful. They were outcast people. I mean, they had to walk around and say, leper, leper, leper. You might have had a great family, and you might have been a loving father, for instance. And as soon as you got a little bit of leprosy on you, you went to the rabbi once he did his thing and declared it was leprosy, you couldn't even be with your family. You couldn't touch them. 
it was a really, really difficult thing because then you were forbidden to come in contact with anybody. The lepers were required to stay apart, not come around anyone. The Jewish people viewed the only thing that could defile you worse than being around a leper was touching a dead person. You were totally an outcast, all right? So I'm just trying to set up here who is now before the Lord. And so verse 13, and he stretched out his hand, this is Jesus, and touched him. No rabbi would have ever done that. A rabbi is not going to touch a leper. They'll examine them, but they're not going to touch them. And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. So do you see that? It wasn't go away and maybe it'll get better. I mean, this was instant, instant. And Jesus was so moved with compassion, he actually touches him. And what he's getting ready to tell him to go do is to really follow this eight-day process that is in Leviticus. If you're interested, you can go look at Leviticus 4, verses 1 through 20. And it describes a process that you would then go before the rabbi and show them, and they do various things. And then over a period of days, if you're healed, then they declare you're clean, and now you can go about the community. Much like in some countries now, COVID, and you got to wear a bracelet until you're proven that you've got a negative test, and then you go to the government, and they'll take it off of you, and now you can mingle with people. Just thought I'd throw that in. (laughs) So he touches him, and he cleanses him. The leprosy leaves him, verse 14. And Jesus ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, for a testimony to them. So he wants them to go follow this, as I mentioned in Leviticus 4. Go do that. And the fact that they'll see that you've been cleansed, that'll be testimony of the power that Jesus has. Verse 15, but the news about Jesus was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So this was great testimony of Jesus' power to heal and perform these miracles before people. Verse 16, but he himself, being Jesus, would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. So prayer was a very important part of Jesus' life on earth while he was here. Verse 17, he's now going to be in a house. This isn't a synagogue. He's in Capernaum somewhere. We figure that out when we look at Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So you see this again, as I mentioned, Jesus had given up many of his powers, but the Holy Spirit is there with him. And so now he's going to show them that he not only has the power to heal, but he also has the power to forgive sins. Just a little bit real quick about the Pharisees. The Pharisees came from middle class. They were proud and self-righteous. They were hypocrites. They had added a lot of things to the Mosaic law to really make it where they could appear to be outwardly religious, make themselves look good. They're experts in the law, but man, there was a huge gap between what they actually taught and the way they actually lived their life. And Jesus just rails on them because they really had no heart for God. It was all about glorifying themselves, and the religious stuff they would do was all about trying to elevate themselves before other men. So we've got these Pharisees and teachers of the law. They were sitting there. They'd come from all over. Verse 18, And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And when we read in Mark chapter 2, we see there were four men. And they were trying to bring him and set him down in front of Jesus. So this is a paralyzed man. Now, this man would be different from a leper. A paralytic would not be as ostracized from society like lepers, but they're still going to be outcast in the community, viewed as a lowly person and probably suffering that because of some sin. He's got four friends that are trying to bring him in to Jesus. They've got faith that Jesus can heal him, but there's so many people they can't get in front of Jesus. And so 
they're very industrious. We see in verse 19, they couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. And so they go up on the roof. Now, then the way these houses were built, when you see pictures in the Middle East, and Chris can tell you all about this, they usually had a flat roof and a stair on the outside of the building to go up to the roof that's on top. It was almost like a sun deck. You could go up there, they would meet up there, or do whatever they do up there. Bathsheba was on a roof one time, which led to some interesting things that happened. That's a story for a different day. But in any event, so they go up on the roof, and there's not as much detail here in Luke, but they cut a hole in the roof, all right? They lift up tiles or whatever there, and they cut a hole, and now they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center, right in front of Jesus. So these are some pretty industrious friends. These are friends you want to have. Verse 20, And seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven of you. So here's a paralyzed guy. He's on a stretcher. He comes down in front of Jesus, let down from the roof. And Jesus says, I've forgiven your sins. And he does that after seeing the faith of all five of these men. Jesus knew that he wanted forgiveness of his sins more than healing. That's the faith that they had. That is our greatest need is to be healed from our sins, not just our physical infirmities. And that's God's greatest gift. Verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are correct. Normally they're not correct. Here they are correct. Only God can forgive sins, but they don't believe that Jesus is God. That's their problem. So in their mind, that's blasphemy, to claim that you're God if you aren't. But Jesus was God, is God. Verse 22, but Jesus, you see this, aware of their reasoning, he didn't hear them. He knew what they were thinking. He's aware of their reasoning. So he answers them and he says to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? See, he knew what they were thinking and he knows their hearts are a mess. Verse 23, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven or to say rise and walk? So really, it's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you prove it? Anybody can say that. You can't prove whether they've been forgiven. But only God can do it, and it's only God who can then give you eternal life with him. But to prove his power, Jesus is going to heal the man, and we'll see that he's cured immediately. And he did this just like he did the leper, but here he didn't have to tell him to go to a rabbi because lepers had to go be declared clean by rabbis under the Mosaic law. So let's see what he says. Verse 24, but in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. By the way, this is the first time Luke uses this term, Son of Man. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. Verse 25, and at once, you see, immediately, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and went home, bringing glory to God. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things. All right. They weren't worshiping God. In spite of the miracle, they're upset because he said that he could forgive sins. But this astonishment that they have, it can either be fear or panic or it can mean reverence for God. But again, it doesn't say that they came to belief. So they know this is very powerful what's going on. We're going to see later that they then say Jesus gets his power from Satan. This is something they've never seen before, but they still don't believe Jesus is God. That happens. Now Jesus is going to go out from the house, verse 27. He goes out and he noticed a tax gatherer named Levi. So this is Matthew. Matthew goes by the name Levi. Tax collectors were Jewish people who got rich collecting taxes for Rome. And so the Jews hated them because Rome basically says, look, here's what we want you to collect for us from everyone. You can bump it up to whatever you want. You can keep whatever extra you collect. So the tax collectors were basically taking money from all their fellow Jewish people, and that's why they were hated. They were viewed as the scum 
also. Uh, they couldn't stand tax collectors. They were hated. And they were also some of the lowest people in the social community. So we're seeing now the third person just in this chapter that he's going after the, the very lowly people. So he sees Levi sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. And so let's see what happens after he begins to follow him. He's following him. He's listening to Jesus. So now, verse 29, Levi gives a big reception, a big party for Jesus. This is Matthew, the apostle. He's probably a very wealthy guy, by the way, because most of them were. But he calls in this great crowd. And who does he bring in? Other tax gatherers and other people. So he calls in all of his friends. And they're reclining at table with Jesus, all right? So it's a lengthy meal. There's lots of conversation, I can only imagine, about Jesus. And Levi is giving this party. He invites all his friends who are also outcast of the religious elite in, of Jewish people. And he's inviting them. They're other sinners, his other friends. He doesn't invite any of the religious elite. He's inviting his friends because he wants them to be introduced to Jesus. This is exactly what we ought to be doing. Verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? They just can't figure out why Jesus would associate himself with these outcast people, these sinners. I mean, they're unclean, these terrible people. They're proud and they're self-righteous and they're focused on this external religious stuff that they do rather than repenting in their heart. And they don't think they need a Savior. They saw no sin in themselves. They think they're just fine. And Jesus hanging around with sinners, that cannot be a good thing. Verse 31, And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous men, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is being a little sarcastic here. He's leaving the self-righteous people alone because they don't think they need him at all. He didn't really come to say he'd love to save them, but people who think they can get there on their own way, if that's what they choose to do. We have free will. It isn't going to work out, as we've looked at many times in Revelation. None of them make it. But if that's what you choose to do, then God will let you do it. And essentially, there's really just two kinds of religion that exist throughout all of the planet. There's just two forms of religion. I know they go by lots of different names. You have all religions other than Christianity that are basically based on human achievement. It's salvation by your own effort. You have to do various things. Buddhists, they follow their eightfold path to get there. Muslims have their five pillars of Islam. Mormons seek to get to God through baptism and then following the teaching of Joseph Smith. Jehovah's Witnesses, they seek to earn their salvation through living a moral life and then doing this door-to-door, -door, converting others. Catholics seek salvation by mass and sacraments and doing all these good works that hopefully they'll earn grace. They'll earn enough to be able to get there. I can go on and on. That's religion, okay? Those are the world's religions. And every one of them, you're trying to be good enough that maybe you're a little better than most everybody else and hopefully God grades on the curve and you'll get in. Christianity is not like that at all. It's the opposite. Christianity says... There is no way I can get there. I am a sinner. I am lost. There is no way I'll ever get right with God. I deserve to go to hell. And God says, you are absolutely right, but I've got a solution. I'm coming to you. I'm going to send my son, and all you got to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Realize you can't get there except he's going to pay your debt for you. You don't have the ability to do it. You got nothing to contribute to it, but place your faith, accept the gift, and you will then have eternal life. And by the way, that's the only way to the Father is through the Son, the Bible says. And so that's true Christianity. Everybody tries to go their own way, 
that's our flesh. You know, we want to feel like we earned it, but there isn't anything you can do to put God in a position that he owes you something. That's just not going to happen. I mean, there's no way God's going to owe you anything. He's sovereign. Christianity, true Christianity, is only through God's grace and our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing we do or contribute to it, it's just through his grace and our faith in Jesus Christ alone in our acceptance of the gift. And so uh, Jesus is basically saying here in these two verses that we just read, he didn't come to try to kind of tweak Judaism. Like, okay, you all have all your stuff. That's great. Keep doing that stuff. And then I'm just going to put a little tweak on it a little bit to help you get in. And maybe we'll both work together because I can't do it on my own. I'm only the son of God. I mean, that's basically what you're saying when you say that Jesus needs my help. I got to do something. I mean, yeah, I believe that he died on the cross, had a terrible death, buried, rose again on the third day. I believe all that. But then I also got to do some stuff, you know, because Jesus didn't quite get the job done. I mean, he needs my help. That's not the gospel. You know, that comment where he says, I've come, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, he's telling that to the Pharisees who are self-righteous and it goes right over their head. Mm. Right. He's come to call all of us none of us are righteous right and that goes right over their head they think they're they're already righteous anyway it's jesus a little sarcasm going on exactly verse 33 and they said to him the disciples of john this is john the baptist often fast and offer prayers the disciples of the pharisees also do the same okay so the old testament by the way this is another place they added stuff to it. The Old Testament required only a one-day fasting on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees, they added a whole bunch of stuff to it and required fasting on Mondays and Thursdays and just to be religious. And they did it out in front of everybody and walked around like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm fasting today. I'm about to die. But, you know, uh, and Jesus railed on them about that. But apparently John the Baptist and his disciples, they also fasted occasionally. And the Pharisees were aware of it. And so they're implying, at least in their question, that Jesus and his followers were neglecting prayer and fasting. Now, we know Jesus didn't neglect prayer. We see him praying all the time. We also see where he fasted. He was fasting for 40 days, remember, when he was led out by the Holy Spirit and was tempted by Satan that we read in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. But anyway, they're alleging this to them. And they're trying to say that Jesus' followers weren't following the Jewish religious traditions that they were following. And so they couldn't be righteous because they weren't doing even all this extra religious stuff that they always did. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? So the disciples, by the way, they did fast after Jesus was taken from them. You can go look in Acts 13, 2 through 3. And it's also talked about in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, fasting is. Basically, Jesus is saying it's kind of ridiculous to fast while Jesus was right there with them. I mean, God is right there with them. He's right there, and he's performing miracles. But they're too proud. They're trying to say, look at us. We fast. We don't need all your stuff. Your disciples don't even fast. They were too proud. And yet, if you go read in James 4, 6, God is so opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 35, he says, But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days, which I gave you the verses where that does happen. Verse 36, And he was also telling them a parable. And here's the parable, an, an illustration. He's going to give him an illustration. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. He's saying you can't mix the true gospel with this man-made religious tradition stuff and rules. There's only one path. And then he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. 
As I said, Jesus didn't come to tweak Judaism and all its self-righteous rituals and things that they had. He came to fulfill the Old Testament law, and he came for the people who knew that they were sinners and needed a Savior in order to get right with God. He's also saying that the church and Israel are really two different systems. By their rejection, the church age is now going to come in, and it's like they're two different things is what he's saying here. He says in verse 38, But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough. So they just have no desire for the gospel the true gospel. That's what he's saying. And when you look at the differences between Judaism and Christianity, I mean, Judaism then characterized by self-righteousness and concern about what other people think about you and how they view you and really focused on external behaviors to try to appear to be righteous. Where Christianity, it's really having a heart that acknowledges how sinful you are, that you are not righteous, and you're concerned more about what God thinks about you rather than what others think about you. And the focus is really on our internal attitudes and our heart for God and how sinful we are and how we need God's help to change us. As soon as you start trying to add a bunch of works to the gospel, that's not the true gospel at all. I guess to just kind of wrap up what we've talked about today, Jesus is saying that it's a waste of time to try to mix the true gospel of grace with any other system of righteousness obtained through works because that's not grace and that's not the true gospel. And there's no hope of salvation for people who just continue to stubbornly cling to their religious traditions. And I see that a lot even when I'm sharing the gospel with people of various, not only Jewish people, but other religious folks who that's what they've been taught by their parents and generations and generations. And it's so difficult for them because they say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but for me to go along with what you're saying, and I always tell them it's not what I'm saying, it's what the Bible's saying. I'm just reading it. I didn't write this. This isn't my saying. They're so concerned that they're going to be outcast from their family. Their family is going to just reject them. And we're going to see later on where Jesus talks about a true disciple. You're going to have that happen. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose family members who are not believers. He doesn't say don't love them, but you need to expect that, that people are going to view you as they don't want any part of that because they want to keep doing what they want to do the way they've been taught, and they don't want to hear anything else, and they're just lost. They think they can earn their way and do it their own way, and God will let them do it, but it sure is sad because they're not going to make it because our greatest need is to have our sin forgiven, and we can't do that on our own. God's got to do that for us. And I guess I'll share this with you. I've had people sometimes say this, you know, well, Larry, you're a religious guy. I never want to be called religious because religious to me, as I read what Jesus was saying about these very religious leaders, religious is about doing stuff outwardly to show other people and to bring glory to myself through the outward stuff I'm doing. I don't want to be called religious. I just want to be called a servant of the Most High God. It's not about the external things. Anything I'm doing to bring glory to myself is working against what God wants me to do. And then finally, I just want to close with just kind of a question because Jesus has been talking about it, and we saw it when we first started. In verse 10, he says, From now on you'll be catching men. How well are each of us doing in our fishing? How well are we doing in catching men? What's our catch look like? How are we doing there? I don't want an answer. I just want you to think about it. Are you enabling the Holy Spirit to really allow you to be the fisherman that he wants you to be? So with that, I'll open it up for discussion, questions, comments. I have just a comment, Larry, and I know you've talked about it before with your family, you know, reconciling, trying to understand the Catholic, let's just give an example, the Catholic religion 
that you were raised in and you had that discussion with your dad, Lee, that you need to earn it, you need to follow all these. But yet, here, it says in the Bible, in our family Bible, that's not the way. How did the Catholics get so off course with this <laughs> concept? Is it, I guess, man and the Pope and power and all that just corrupted their way of thinking? And that's what shaped the Catholic religion? I think that's a big part of it. That's certainly what you see in all of these religions. The ones I mentioned, there's always somebody that came up with something. It was some outward stuff that made them feel religious or whatever. I don't know how they got so far off. But how do they reconcile it? Like well, the father is a good example. When you go, wait a minute, here's what it says, and this is our Bible. How do you reconcile Much like many of these other religions in that if you begin with the concept that when the Pope makes pronouncements, it's equivalent to God's word. That is God speaking and adding to the Bible. So if you're going to go that path, there's no verses for that. There's nothing that says, and by the way, stay tuned. I'm going to anoint men for the generations to come that will continue to supplement this and add to it and provide additional things. I mean, there's just nothing here. But that's what they do and that's what they believe. And so when the Pope makes these pronouncements, they're equivalent in their teaching to what the Bible says. So when the Pope says that whatever it is, uh, we're going to have sprinkling of babies to get rid of original sin, and that's the first impartation of grace. See, their belief is grace is actually imparted to you by the priest. When you go and you do these various sacraments, that's when grace is imparted to you. That's how you get it, as opposed to true Christianity is it comes from God, and it comes when you realize that you can't get there on your own, that you're a broken sinner, there's no way to get right with God except by placing faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's not your works. It's by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then you're saved. And the verses in the Bible say that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe you'll be saved. It doesn't say maybe. It doesn't say, well, if you're lucky, maybe you'll get to this middle place called purgatory. It doesn't say believe and then do a whole bunch of stuff and I'll let you know when you get here. It's so clear that the gospel is to bring peace. And the peace that we have is because we know where we're going. I mean, before I became a Christian, I was Catholic as a boy. And you've heard my testimony. It was on a Protestant youth group that somebody sat down and opened the Bible and showed me the verses. And I prayed a simple prayer and this Tremendous peace came over my heart because for the first time in my life, I knew I was going to heaven. And before that, I knew I was not going to heaven because I was confessing the same sins every Sunday to the priest over and over and over again. He told me to go say 20 Hail Marys and 50 Our Fathers and, you know, whatever. I just knew I never was going to get right with God until somebody said, that's not how it works. Other members of my family, and I hear that all the time. Larry, that's not what I was taught. I go, you know what? That wasn't what I was taught either. I was taught the same thing you were taught. And I believed that for a long time until somebody showed me God's words in the Bible. And so you have the same choice to make that I had to make. I can go with the traditions and what I was taught for generations, or I can go with what God wrote in the book to me. And for me, I've chosen to go with what God wrote rather than what... So your approach is exactly what happened to Martin Luther, basically. Martin Luther said, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. This is what it says, and you're telling me something else. Yes. And that's basically the beginning of the Reformation, right? Correct. I feel like Catholicism is like similar to what the Jews like. In many ways it is, except at least they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for our sins. Although then it gets really convoluted. It's like, if he died for your sins, then you're forgiven. Well, it's just like what Paul was saying. Why do you want to go put that yoke back on, you know? That now you got to go earn a bunch of stuff. A lot of that is very similar. You just kept adding rules. Yeah. On top of, right. the Jews originally had like a relationship with they were supposed to worship him, and then they just start like adding things. And it's about the rules and not the relationship. Right, and I think that's because people are desperately needing 
uh, assurance in ways that they can do something to earn it as opposed to hear God's word for it. So, for example, how can I know for sure that my baby's going to go to heaven if they don't live? Well, I can't trust the relationship. I need to know what I can do. And that, that becomes the, the hard part. Or what about the people that are, have died and they were good people generally? Well, let's invent purgatory because that, it, you know, whenever you have a person that's sort of in charge, you, have, you make enough demonstrations, enough crying, weeping, enough complaining that eventually you can shift the, the Pope to kind of bend to the will of the people, which happened a lot as opposed to just sticking what God's word said. And I think that it's hard. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Everybody wants to be like loved and adored, but that's what's nice about God's word. It doesn't change and you don't have to have a person equal to it. There's a freedom in that, right? There's a freedom when there isn't a person whose word is equal to God's word. It's just now I have to submit to that and I now become the messenger, not the authority. And so some of those pronouncements, baptism, purgatory, those were as a result of the people wanting a solution to this dilemma they were in. What about my child when they die? I want to be assured that they're going to heaven. Okay, so all right, we'll come up with sprinkling. What about my dead relatives that he's talking about? Can I pray for them and somehow get them somewhere? Well, no, but you can make a donation and that will then get them into purgatory. That'll buy them out of purgatory. If they were good enough, that'll buy them out of purgatory and move them. I mean, you know, where does this come from? I don't know. It's not in here. But if you back up and say, yeah, but the Pope said it. Well, and I believe when the Pope makes these pronouncements, it's God. Well, now you're, you're messed up. Well, let me ask you this then, just asking that question. If a child does die, what happens to that child? Great question. And I've showed you this many, many times. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Samuel 12. One of my favorite texts in Scripture. You remember David has sex with Bathsheba. He should have been on the battlefield, but he wasn't. Bathsheba's husband was one of the leaders in the military. He's out fighting the fight, so he's off in battle. David sees Bathsheba over on the roof of the building next door. He calls his servants to go over and get Bathsheba, bring her back. They have sex. She gets pregnant. David wants to cover it up. So he brings her husband back from the battlefield, thinking he's been in battle for a long time. He'll come back and have sex with her. Then they'll think it's his kid. Well, this is a very honorable man. He refuses to even go in the house. He says, how can I go have sex with my wife when my men are out fighting the battle where I need to be? So he tries to get him drunk. Anyway, he won't do it. So David sends him back out to the battlefield and positions him in a place to get killed. He gets killed. After a period of mourning, David and Bathsheba get married anyway. David is confronted by the prophet Nathan that he has done bad. You can read all this in 2 Samuel 12. I'm just paraphrasing. And tells this story about how this terrible man took, I can't remember, it's like a sheep or something that wasn't his, and took it from a man that was, you know, was a very wealthy man, took a very poor man's, you know, prized possession from him. And David said, find that man. Whoever did that, that's terrible. He deserves to die. And the prophet Nathan said, that man is you. You are the man. And David repented, was very upset, confessed his sin to God, said, I'm sorry. And Nathan tells him not to fear. God has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because of this, your child is going to die when it's born. Sure enough, it's born. It's very sick. David fasts prays, fast prays. His servants are very worried about him because he won't eat anything. Finally, the child dies. The servants are afraid to tell David, but finally they come in and tell him the child's dead. David cleans up, says, let's have a meal. It's almost like nothing happened. And the servants go, we don't get it. When the child was sick, you were praying and fasting. The child's now dead and you're just going about life like, you know, you're moving on. And what David says Verse 23 of 2 Samuel 12. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay. And what that tells me is David is saying, I'm not going to see this infant again. 
he's not coming back. He's in heaven. I know David's going to heaven. So David's saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see him there. That stands for me to say when a child dies that doesn't have mental capacity yet to be able to discern and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to heaven. That also gives me comfort because someone like my mentally impaired daughter, I don't know what she believes, but I know she's going to heaven. So I have much comfort there. Why the Catholic Church didn't go read 2 Samuel 12 when they made these pronouncements to give people comfort, I don't know. But instead, they came up with sprinkling for baptism. And you can read the Bible cover to cover. There is no instance of a child or infant being sprinkled, of anyone being sprinkled, much less an infant. Just not in there. It's submersion. In fact, baptism means submerge. That's what baptism means. To say you went swimming and all you did was sit by the pool would be a lie. You didn't go swimming. You sat by the pool. You didn't get in the pool. So to say you were baptized when all you, you weren't immersed, you weren't baptized, you were sprinkled. No verses for that. I got no problem with dedicating a child as a small infant and sprinkling them or whatever you want to do. But that's not for the child. That's basically the parents saying we are dedicating this child and committing to raise this child as a Christian. I got no problem with that. But if you think that's saving them, Catholics believe if you don't get baptized, you can't even go to heaven. Well, what about the criminal on the cross who died with Jesus right next to him and put his faith in Jesus right before he died? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in heaven. He didn't jump down off the cross and go get baptized. So again, it's just convoluted. And the Bible says, as soon as you die as a Christian, you are with, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. And this is God's word. I mean, I know it's David's words, but it's in the Bible. And it says every word in here is inspired by God. God breathed. So those are God's words. Even though David said it, David's saying he's going to go be with him when he dies. And he's comforted by that. And I think it's there to give us comfort. Even the sentence right after that says, then David comforted his wife. Okay, so he was comforted. He knew he was going to see his son. And now he went and comforted his wife. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.